Could I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 2. For those of you who are new with us, we welcome you. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning, in our study in John's Gospel, we come to the end of chapter 2, which really serves as a segue into the extremely important material in chapter 3. So, Let's read these verses, starting with verse 23. Now when, he had, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now as we said... As we read these verses, we realize that John is using them to transition his gospel from chapter 2 into chapter 3. However, even though it might be um, tempting to kind of just brush over these and not spend any time thinking about them, in these verses, well, they contain some very important truths that um, we need to understand. Very important, in fact, extremely important uh, truth. And that primarily is that not all faith is genuine in the eyes of God. Not all faith is genuine in the eyes of God. I'd like to build this message around the key thought found in each of these three verses. Verse 23, many believed in his name. Verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Verse 25, he knew what was in man. So again, verse 23, And when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, that would be a word for miracles, which he did. Now, at first glance, as you read this, you might kind of get excited that many people were believing in Jesus at that time when they saw him perform these miracles in Jerusalem at the feast of Passover. I can just hear Many people saying, you know, it's awesome that he was having such an impact on these people um, through his miracles. Aren't miracles a powerful way to save people? And as I said, when you read this, you might be prone to get excitement about their faith, verse 23. That is until you read verses 24 and 25 and realize that Jesus wasn't so excited about their faith. The reason... Their faith wasn't the kind of faith that he could respond or commit himself to because, listen, it was built solely on the miracles that he did. Solely on the miracles that he did. Now, guys, that's not intended to downplay the power of miracles to impact people and bring them to faith in Christ. I mean, John himself tells us in the 20th chapter of his gospel that he purposely chose certain miracles to record so that when people read his gospel, they would believe many things he said, many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. But these I have written down, these I have chosen, that you might believe he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So John did include miracles in his gospel that when we read these, or when anyone reads them, they would be hopefully brought to faith in Christ. However, John did go on to say in his book numerous times, it takes more than believing in miracles alone for a person to really be saved. I mean, seeing these signs that Jesus did and believing in them would be a great start in the process of salvation. I mean, even the disciples started this way. But in and of themselves, miracles are not enough to build saving faith upon. It's important to note that Jesus tied his miracles always to the truth of his message. In other words, whenever he did a miracle, he always quickly then uh, launched into a teaching. These were never standalone experiences. He never did miracles as standalone experiences. He never did miracles just to wow the crowd or entertain the multitudes. There was a purpose in it. Those miracles were designed to grab attention to point to him, that's where they're called signs, they pointed to him as Messiah, and then he confirmed that by teaching God's truth. You see, 
he never did miracles alone. That wouldn't be uh, worth anything unless they had truth to back them up. But, you know, he knew the human heart, and he knew that we as human beings are attracted to the sensational just by nature. We're attracted to the sensational. He knew that. And miracles, talk about attracted to the sensational, miracles are at the top of the list, okay? I mean, miracles are powerful in their ability to move people and cause them, listen, to react out of emotion rather than causing them to act out of reason as when the word of God is being presented. Remember what God said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1? He said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He didn't say, come, let us emote together, says the Lord. Now, an example of this would be the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which is recorded in each of the four Gospels. Jesus had been teaching for like three days, and uh, the people had not eaten anything, basically, except what they had brought primarily, but that was gone a long time ago. And um, he didn't want to send them away without giving them something to eat because he was afraid they were going to faint on the way, three days without food, right? And they'd have to go into a village or town somewhere, which we don't know how far those were. And um, so, you know, he said to his disciples, let's, let's you guys feed them. And they were like shocked. Us? We don't have enough to give just a little bit to everybody. And uh, he said, um, have them sit down. What do we got? Uh, what do we have? Well, we got a kid here with a sack lunch. He's got a couple small pickled fish and uh, five barley crackers. What's that? So, what, what is that much? We talk about so many people. He said, have the people sit down. Took the five little barley crackers and two pickled fish. He prayed, and uh, he said to his disciples, now distribute these to the multitude. Everybody ate, 5,000 men plus women and children, probably fifteen to 20,000 people ate. And the Greek says they, didn't, they were filled, but the word means glutted. And they picked up, what, 12 baskets full of fragments? Okay. Well, that's a pretty spectacular miracle, right? I mean, the crowd is thinking, wow, not only does he entertain us, miracles are entertaining, he also feeds us, it's dinner and a show. It's, you know, this is awesome. And it says they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Emotional response, right? Motion of the moment. That is until he started to teach. And he teaches this incredible message about him being the bread of life. And how that he doesn't just want them to add him to, his, to their lives. He has to become their life. Well, you know what? When they heard that... Many of them split it, said they, they, they took off. They left him and followed him no more. See, the people loved to be entertained and fed. Again, miracle, bread and fish. But they really weren't interested in hearing the word of God preached, which challenged the way they were living and demanded that they make a change, they repent. You know, we are seeing a lot of churches kind of employing this same principle where they're trying to draw people and keep people in their churches um, through signs and wonders. It's a, these are word of faith churches. And, uh, you know, in every service, somebody's getting healed. Somebody, some miracle is happening. Now, it's orchestrated. I'm not saying God doesn't heal today. He certainly does. I'm just saying that others in other ministries, after somebody has been brought forward and they can't walk and they're prayed over and now they get up and walk or something else, they were sick and now they're better or they're healed... People from other ministries have tracked these folks down several days later to see how they were doing. Many of them were just as sick or had the same kind of infirmity before they came to the church, okay? Sometimes it's the placebo effect, the emotion of the moment, all right? Sometimes people want so badly to be healed that they imagine they are, and at the moment they feel better, but then later on um, everything goes back to the way it was. Again, I'm not saying God doesn't heal. He does, even today, all right? I'm just saying that you cannot grab people and hold... See, but these churches don't really teach the Word. It's all about the experiential. And um, this is appealing to emotionalism and nothing else. You know, Jesus later chided the people of Israel whose faith was so weak and shallow that it had to be constantly bolstered with the supernatural when he said in John 4, 48... 
unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Look, any faith that is built solely on the supernatural, signs and wonders, miracles, is a shallow faith. Is a shallow faith. God's word is the only sure foundation upon which you must build your faith. Guys, you simply cannot build a strong faith on experience, on, on the experiential. You can't do it. And yet, that's, what, that's exactly what many people are doing. You know, Jesus said, though, that foundation is like shifting sand. And when the storms of life hit, if you built your faith on emotionalism and that kind of thing, or feelings, well, when the storms of life come, your so-called faith is going to crumble and fall. And the reason it's going to crumble and fall is because that's, that kind of so-called faith is really just feeling or emotionalism masquerading as faith. That's all it is. And it's only going to last so long. It's only going to last so long until, listen, negative feelings replace it, and then that person's going to walk away from Christ and Christianity. Now listen, earlier I just said that, you know, when God's word is preached, it gives rise to reason and people making decisions based on reason and good judgment and not on emotionalism. But there are preachers who are very gifted communicators, and they can really wow a crowd. And, and they're very powerful in their preaching, and they can weave in emotional stories so that when they give the altar call, a lot of people will come forward motivated by emotions. It can even happen when the Word of God is preached, okay? Jesus talked about these very people when he, ta uh, he taught the parable of the sower. Remember that? How he said, a certain man went out to sow seed in his field. Well, later he explained it and says, well, the man was sowing the Word of God, the gospel, and the seed fell on various types of soil, and he later on explained those were various types of hearts. And the one type of heart that the seed fell on was what he called earlier the rocky soil, or we would say shallow soil. When he explained that type of heart, he said in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, the seed on the shallow soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with great joy. They have a great emotional response to the preaching of the word. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing in God's word. Guys, feelings can change moment by moment. One minute you're up and happy, next minute you're down and depressed. I mean, you know, if your faith in Jesus is dependent upon your feelings... However you're feeling at that moment, well, that's how strong or weak your faith is going to be. That's why you have to base your faith on the solid rock, the solid foundation of God's Word, because God's Word doesn't change. That's why it's likened to a rock, a solid foundation. Peter said it lives and abides forever. It never changes. It's immutable, all right? You know, aren't you glad your Bible has never had to be updated or revised? You've never had to go in a Christian bookstore and see the Bible, updated and revised and expanded version. Well, I should take that. There are some groups that have, have expanded on God's Word. The Mormons, we had four Mormon guys in here years ago, came for a Bible study. And uh, I asked them to show me their Bible, and they showed it to me kind of thick. And I said, um, I, they said, I said, well, what is it made of? Well, this is the Old Testament. The middle part is the New Testament. And this last part is the Book of Mormon. And so they've added to it. But you can't, I'm speaking in general terms, you cannot build your faith on something as shaky as feelings or emotionalism or the supernatural for that matter. I don't care if it's miracles or what, all right? You can't build your faith on something. It's like shifting sand. Besides that, miracles can be counterfeited. And therefore, they can produce a wrong response or lead people into deception. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2 how the, at, one time, at one point in the future, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. And the devil's going to give him supernatural power. In fact, he's going to be able to do lying signs and wonders. And those words, signs and wonders, are the same Greek words for Jesus' miracles. Except it says that the Antichrist miracles are lying miracles. Why? Because Jesus' miracles pointed people to the truth himself. 
Whereas the Antichrist miracles are going to point people away from the truth to a lie. That's why they're lying miracles. Satan has the power to do miraculous things. And that's why God even said in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, if any prophet does a miracle in your midst, talking to Israel, but then teaches you to follow other gods or a false prophet, stone them. Acknowledging that false prophets can have supernatural powers. People in the occult, uh, people in various other religions can have supernatural powers given to them by the devil, by demons. That's why we have to always check what are they teaching after they perform some supernatural sign and then compare what they're teaching to the Word of God. So when Jesus said, guys, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders, he's looking for a deeper faith than emotionalism. He's looking for faith that's built upon God's Word. One pastor put it this way. He rightly warned, and I quote, There are those who seek miraculous proof that Jesus is real and that he loves them. They search for physical, material, or financial verification of his reality. But theirs is a flimsy, faulty faith built on a sandbar foundation because, as we will see, Jesus is not committed to those who demand a sign. You see, the problem with signs, miracles, if you try to base your faith on them, is that they're never enough. If you base your faith upon signs, you'll always be upset by the one that didn't happen, the prayer that wasn't answered, the healing that didn't come, the money that you didn't receive to pay the bill. If you base your faith on signs, you'll always be upset when they don't happen. That is why our faith must be built and based not upon what Jesus does, but upon who he is, and who he is is revealed in the word. That's why Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the word pointing to the person of Jesus Christ that produces genuine faith, end quote. So when verse 23 says that many believed in his name, it's not talking about saving faith. They believed he was a great healer, um, a great miracle worker, but not necessarily a great savior from sin or master of one's life. All right, They believed he was a lot of things, but they didn't believe to the point where they were ready to commit their lives to him. And as time went on, their attitude towards him began to change. Worsby said, and I quote, As you follow our Lord's ministry in John's gospel, you see him moving gradually out of the bright light of popularity into the dark shadows of rejection. At the beginning of his ministry, it was easy for people to follow the crowd and watch his miracles, but then his words be began to penetrate hearts with conviction following, and conviction leads either to conversion or to opposition, end quote. And that's really what is happening in Jesus' ministry, as we will see uh, as we go through John's gospel. Initially, people were thrilled. Uh, he had a lot of groupies, by the way. All right, And people flocked to him because he did the miraculous. Okay, He was doing incredible things. He was casting out demons. He was even raising the dead, healing the sick. And this caused great crowds to follow him. Wherever he went, at first he was quite a novelty, but as I said, every time he worked a miracle, he preached the truth of God. Initially, the people just accepted it because they wanted the miracles, but after a while, they got used to the miracles, as people do. See, here's the thing. You build a church on the, the sensational, and you always got to keep coming up with more sensationalistic ways to keep. If that's what brought them in, you got to come up with more and more sensational ways to keep them in the seats. How much better just to teach God's word, let the Holy Spirit draw them and keep them in those seats. But initially, you know, they put up with his, they tolerated his preaching to watch the miracles. As time went on, though, they got used to the miracles and began not to tolerate the teaching anymore. And that's when they began to turn against him. That's when they began to follow him no more. In fact, many began to then persecute him. These were the ones that called for his crucifixion, finally, uh, on the day of his crucifixion, when they had been wowed by his ministry three years earlier and sung his praises, but now things have changed. And here's the thing. 
Jesus never wanted people to be neutral about him. He never wanted to placate so that he was popular with both sides, all right? In fact, he himself challenged people. He said, either you're for me or you're against me. This forced people to take a stand, to get off the fence uh, concerning him, to make a decision as to whether they were going to receive him as Lord or reject him as a liar and possibly a lunatic. Those who did commit, commit themselves to him fully from the heart on his terms, very important, um, found out that you know, those that committed themselves to him on his terms found out that he was committed to them. Those that rejected him, rejected his preaching, did not commit themselves to him. Well, they found out that he would not commit himself to them either. And that brings us to our second key statement in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. The words believed in verse 23 and commit in verse 24 are the same Greek word. In other words, John is telling us that these people believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. He didn't have faith in their faith, is the idea, because he knew their hearts. And he knew they were, listen, unsaved believers. Unsaved believers? Pastor, what are you talking about? That's an oxymoron. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I was an unsaved believer for many years. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I believed everything about Jesus I believe right now. I was always taught he was the Son of God, Savior of the world, who died for my sins, third day rose again from the dead bodily. I always believed that. But I had not committed myself to him. So I was an unsaved believer. So a lot of these folks running around, by the way. This is what this chap, this passage is really addressing. That's why I say it's important, okay? Because a lot of people are deceived. A lot of people think because they go to church and hear God's word taught, that's all they need. They're right with God, all right? They have mental ascent knowledge. They have head knowledge. But that's as far as it goes in their lives, okay? And it's one thing for a person, like in, in those days, one thing for a person to see Jesus do a miracle and get excited and believe in his power. Quite a different thing. To allow that miracle then to bring you to a place of surrender where you're now willing and able to follow him for the rest of your life. It, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to be wowed in, in a moment by a miracle. It's another thing to commit your life to Christ for a lifetime. That's really what he's after. And the reason so many who ran after him, and again, he had all kinds of groupies that followed him around. Everywhere it went, big crowds thronged him. When the word got out, Jesus is coming, Jesus the town would no doubt empty out and run to where he was coming and walk with him and throng him. We know that from different passages. Many ran to him and followed him. And yet, wouldn't make a commitment to him because, listen, they were nothing more than thrill seekers and not true disciples. Just like today. It's a lot of thrill seekers. Again, a lot of churches that while people with the supposed miracles, which I believe uh, are just, they're being conned. God works miracles. God heals the sick. I'm not denying that. But in these, some of these churches, he's healing people every service of grievous diseases. Every service has got to be a miracle. Now, come on. Okay? Uh, I don't buy it. And, 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 the, and the research doesn't prove it. You go check these people out, and, you know, uh, the folks are still sick. They're still handicapped and so on. But um, there's a lot of thrill seekers um, back then, even today, who come to church and follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Um, we've talked about this, how many different reasons people will follow uh, Jesus uh, with a lot of different motives, actually. Um, some really want to know him. That's true. So, some are drawn to church because they really want to know the Lord. They, they want to know Him. They, want, they, they really do love Him. They want to serve Him. And there's a lot of good folks like that who come to church for the right, right reasons. And then there's many others who simply come for what they can get from Him. They've been promised Cadillacs, mansions, prosperous businesses. And they come to church because they want what Jesus is given. In their minds, what He's given. 
But listen, Jesus only commits himself to those who genuinely commit themselves to him out of love. That's the only kind of relationship, by the way, he accepts. He accepts. Remember, chapter 2 opened up with Jesus and his disciples being invited to a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee, which was a small town located not far from where Jesus grew up. He grew up in Nazareth, right? The chapter starts with a wedding. Now, marriage is all about commitment, where a man and a woman commit themselves to staying with each other through good times, bad times, sickness, health, until death separates them. Listen to me. True love based on commitment is what holds, is what holds a marriage together and makes the two one. Today, many couples are seeking to escape making that commitment to each other by sidestepping marriage and just living together. And I don't doubt they have feelings for each other. I'm sure they do. That's why they're together. But it isn't true love. It's not, it's not God's love, which is all about a commitment. God's love is not a feeling. It's a commitment. And that alone is the only kind of foundation a marriage can be built upon that will allow it to weather the storms of life. Without it, listen, their relationship is nothing more than roommates having sex. That's all it is. Why do people live together? Well, I've heard people say to me, unbelievers, well, we don't need a piece of paper to prove our love for each other. Well, that's true. I'm not arguing that. You know, I'm not advocating that. A piece of paper can't make two people love each other. But listen to me, without it, you don't love each other either. Because that piece of paper signifies a legally binding contract where society now understands that you two are tied together in marriage and you both are the recipient of the other's blessings or whatever it might be. You know, Peter said, look, commit yourself to, to the every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Marriage is an ordinance of man. It's a... It's a legally binding thing in a society whereby two people are recognized now to be one and they have privileges. Let me give you an example. People say, we don't need a piece of paper to prove our love. Well, let me tell you something. Do you love that girl? Well, I've been with her for five, ten years. Of course I love her. But you haven't married her. Well, we don't need a piece of paper. You got life insurance? Sure. Do you want her to be taken care of if you die? Well, sure. Well, she's not going to be, she's not going to have any access to your life insurance because you're not married to her. If one of you gets hurt and the other has to go to the hospital to be with them, they're going to want to know, are you married? Well, no, we're not married. Well, then HIPAA says you don't have any right to know what's going on. Talk to a doctor. You're completely out of the loop. This is love. This is the kind of love that says, look, I want to make sure you're taken care of after I'm gone because I love you. I have made a commitment to you and so on. We're living in a very shallow society. And people have convinced themselves of a lot of things that are nothing more than lies. And one of them is, I can love you without a piece of paper. That's a lie. Because everything legally says, no, you can't. Why don't people get married? Why don't people get married? Since we're talking on this subject, why don't they get married? Well, there's different reasons. I think one could be some are just too lazy to be bothered. They have such a low view of marriage, it's just not even worth the time. Or number two, maybe they're too afraid to fail at marriage and have to endure the pain that goes along with divorce. And so they opt to play it safe by playing at marriage. Or this one, number three, I think is really the one that's most likely. Maybe they're two selfish people who are only in the, relationship for, in the relationship for what they can get out of it or how it makes them feel, which they're constantly evaluating. What a wonderful relationship. Constantly evaluating if this person that I'm staying with or living with is measuring up to my standards and blessing me the way I want, providing everything I want from them, but I'm always looking out for a better candidate. I'm always on the lookout for anyone else that might come along that's better. 
that's going to give me more stuff, make me feel better about myself. And if they come along, guess what? I'm cutting loose my current partner. And get, and you know what? <laughs> that's going to be messy, expensive, and drawn out if they had to divorce the person. So let's not get married at all. They want to keep the door open for a quick escape if someone better comes along. It's Hollywood love, isn't it? Hollywood love, which is feelings-oriented. I love you because you make me feel a certain way. I like the way people look at me when you're on my arm as we're walking out there on the town. You know, I get this you know, beautiful person on my arm, and people are looking at me going, wow, that's a, you know, and I feel good about that. If the day ever comes when you don't look so good, or you don't make me feel so good to be with you, you know what? I'll cut you loose and find somebody else. Because that is not agape love, God's love. That's eros love. That's erotic, selfish, self-focused love. That's what it's all about. That's the society we live in. Yet people are convinced that what they call love is really wonderful love. It isn't. It's selfishness masquerading as love. Again, feelings. Feelings of self, self-worth. Self, you know, looking to self and so on. Look, the reason Jesus didn't commit himself to these people in our text this morning wasn't because he didn't love them, wasn't because they weren't good enough for him. Of course, none of us are. It was solely because they didn't want to go all the way in their relationship with him. You hear me? They didn't want to go all the way in their relationship with him and commit themselves to him for better or worse for the rest of their lives on earth. Jesus loves people, all people. In fact, he loves people so much he's proposing marriage to them. But you know what? Without the other person accepting his proposal and making a commitment to him, it doesn't matter. It's meaningless. And again, that's why Jesus didn't commit himself to these people, because he wants a real relationship built on loving commitment. I mean, he's already proved this commitment to us, hasn't he? To die for someone? Man, that is the ultimate act of commitment. Total commitment. And, you know, he wants the same from us. Maybe not that we die physically, but that we die to everything else, just focus on him as our master and savior and so on. Now, look, the Lord Jesus doesn't mind a person checking him out before making a commitment to him. In fact, he actually encouraged that. He said, look, before you decide to follow me, okay, and he's talking about being a disciple, being committed to him, before you decide to follow me, you better count the cost. Because there's cost involved, okay? And so he encouraged people to, you know, think about it, to, to reason it out, and to make a decision based on sound judgment, not on emotions and feelings. Make no mistake about it. Jesus, if you're going to check him out, great. There's a lot of people come to church and they're checking Jesus out. And often they're checking him out by what they see in us. Okay? And that's fine. For people to come to church for a while and see what this is all about, this Christianity, and, you know, what we're like, are we living how we believe and so on? Is this hypocrisy or is this people who really believe this stuff? And is Jesus a real Savior to them, uh, to us? Has he changed our lives? You know, the whole thing. They're checking everything out. But there comes a time when Jesus said, fish or cut bait. All right, the time has come. You've checked me out long enough. It's time to either make a commitment or move on. Jake, the, you know, he shook the dust off his feet more than once as he presented himself to a village or town, and they didn't want him. Checked him out, did a few miracles, but they didn't want to commit themselves to him. Finally, he just brushed the dust off, and moved on. He's looking for a commitment, not a casual, perpetual dating situation. <laughs> now, some people are satisfied to simply date Jesus, but are not interested in taking their relationship deeper by making a commitment to him, you know, to love him, serve him, to stay with him in sickness, health, good times, bad times for the rest of their lives on the earth. It's a marriage commitment. Same idea. And you know what? Serving Jesus 
is the only life that's worth living, but it's not an easy life. Because the devil will declare war on you. He kind of left you alone before you were saved. Oh, he pushed you down paths that will destroy you eventually. Alcoholism, drug abuse, sexual promiscuity. I mean, he was always pushing you down, you know, the, the, the way of fulfilling, satisfying your flesh because he wanted to, you to eventually be destroyed by your flesh. But he pretty much left you alone. When you accept Christ, he declares war. He declares war. That's why we're called soldiers of Christ. That's why the Bible uses military terms and, and, um, and analogies to convey spiritual truth as Christians. Hey, the good news is greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? And as Christians, we're not working towards victory. We're working from victory. We are more than conquerors. But it isn't easy, is it? And if anyone ever tells you it's all about the blessings, you'll never have another bad day the rest of your life. You're going to have the best business in town. You're going to drive the nicest car in town. You're going to live in the biggest house in town. Come to Jesus, you know. They're a false teacher. Write them off. Don't even listen anymore. Paul says those who think that godliness, Christianity is a way to get rich, don't even have any interaction with them. But some people want to date Jesus. You know, when you date somebody, you know, we've all been there, right? And uh, dating is kind of nice, although I didn't really like it, but, uh, <laughs> you know. But, but some people are so shallow, I wanted a deeper. I wanted to find somebody I could be married to, okay? That was my goal. But some people are so shallow, they just like going from one person to the other, you know, because they're just taking what they, makes them feel good. And, and, you know, there are many people out there who just want to date Jesus because, you know, he makes them feel good when they're with other Christians. They, they, they feel like they belong to something. Uh, maybe he does give them uh, some, uh, a healing or some kind of a blessing, you know. So they like that. And they just want to date Jesus, but not really take the relationship to the next level and be married to him. Enter into a commitment with him. But guys, this is the, the kind of commitment Jesus is looking for um, from those who are thinking to follow him. Um, again, some people are not interested in that level of commitment. Now, let's look at our third key idea. We'll kind of wrap this up and come back and touch on some of these things again before we end. But in verse 25, we read, well, let me back up to verse 24 and read them both. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. The third key idea. The uh, Amplified translates verse 25 this way. He did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, needed no evidence from anyone about men, for he himself knew what was in human nature. He could read men's hearts. Well, that's our God. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account, Hebrews 4.13. And of course, as we studied 1 Samuel, we read in chapter 16, verse 7, that it says the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God knows there everything about us that there is to know. Every detail of our lives, nothing escapes him. Psalm 139, verse 12. Even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you, God. You, you know I can't hide from you. I can't, you know, everything I do. In fact, not only do you know everything I'm doing, you never thought I'm thinking. In fact, he goes even farther and says, I know the motives of your heart. I know what motivated what you were thinking and what you're doing. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, Look, judge nothing before the time, by outward, you know, sight. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels or motives of the heart, and then each one's praise is going to come from God. Because 
What we do for God, it's not just about the actions, it's about the motive that motivated the action. Any person who so, so serves God, so-called, but does it from a motive that says, I want people to think I'm spiritual. I want people to, you know, I want to get in good with the pastor so maybe he makes me a leader or an elder in this church because I want that position of authority. God sees all that. And so when you stand before him on the day of judgment to get your rewards, and ours is not a punitive judgment, it's like the judge's seat at the Olympics, you stand before the Lord to get your rewards. He knows the heart. And if in your heart when you did these things it was for selfish motives, you're not getting anything. Now, if you did these things, you serve God on the earth because you love Jesus, and all you want to do is glorify him and just point people to him, when you get to heaven, you will be rewarded greatly. That God knows the heart. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So just touching again on verse 23, many believed in his name. We are living at a time when many in our culture are believing in Jesus' name. But that, there's always a grave danger in that. There's a lot of people who say, you know, you go out and witness to them. Our evangelism team goes out uh, under the streets, Woodfield, other places. And you start talking about Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I always have. I always like to say, well, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? What, what exactly do you mean when you say you believe in Jesus? Do you mean that you believe the facts about who he is and what he did? In other words, he's the son of God who died for your sins and rose again the third day. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. Well, so do the demons. And they tremble, James tells us. I mean, Satan and his demons believe it more than you believe it. You know why? They were there to see it. They were standing there when he was virgin born. They were there when he was working miracles and preaching the gospel. They were there when he was hung on the cross to help put him there. They, was, they were there three days later when the stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped from that tomb alive. They were there to see it all, yet they're not going to heaven. You know why? Because it's head knowledge, but they haven't committed their life to the truth of it. In other words, Jesus is not their Lord. Guys, to be saved, you must take your passive faith, your head knowledge. It's good. It's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Not enough. You've got to take your passive head knowledge, faith, and bring it to the next level to make it active faith. What does that mean? It means you must believe to the point of commitment if you're going to be saved. Let me use the kind of commitment that goes in the marriage once again and how it relates to entering into a saving relationship with Jesus. Now hear me out, okay? A person can believe in the beauty, majesty, fulfillment of marriage they can believe in that with all their heart but unless they actually believe to the point of commitment by pledging their life to a member of the opposite sex you know standing before god on their wedding day and vowing to love and be loyal to that person for the rest of their life well until they've done that they haven't actually entered into marriage regardless of how much they believe in it the same is true when you talk about Jesus and salvation. A person can believe who Jesus is and what he did. A lot of people do. I did. As a Roman Catholic, I believed all of that. Yet I wasn't saved. A person can believe who Jesus is, what he did for them. But unless they take it to the next step and enter into a relationship with Jesus, where they pledge to love him above all others, and to be committed and obedient to him for the rest of their lives, until they have done that, they haven't actually entered into salvation. Even if they believe it's real. I believed it was real. I believed in heaven. I believed in hell. I believed I was a sinner. Before I ever got saved, I believed in Jesus. But I had not made a commitment to him. Guys, listen. And we're, we're done. It's the commitment 
that brings about the relationship that puts you in Christ, which is the New Testament's way of saying you're saved. That's where the Bible talks about salvation in marriage terms, calling Jesus our bridegroom and Christians the bride of Christ. You don't become a Christian until you're willing to enter into the deepest kind of relationship with Jesus that two people can enter into, the marriage relationship. The problem with many churchgoers, and I'm talking about churchgoers now, not that everybody who goes to church is saved. That's the point I'm making. All right, But I'm talking to churchgoers. The problem with many churchgoers today, again, let me repeat what I said earlier, they want to date Jesus but are not really serious about making a commitment to Jesus. They hear the Lord is proposing marriage to them, salvation, and their response is, I just want to be friends, Jesus. <laughs> Guys, you been there with a gal? You started dating this gal, she was wonderful, you fell for her like crazy, you wanted to marry her, and when you kind of brought up the subject, she said, I just want to be friends. Ooh, that's painful. That's painful. And here Jesus, think about this, he's holding out his nail-scarred hands and saying, I love you, I want to marry you. Uh, I, I just want to be friends. I want to come to church. I want you to bless me, but I don't really, I don't want to be a fanatic, you know, one of those fanatics that, you know, has to, you know, go to that level. I know a lot of these folks think they already have a relationship with Jesus. Kind of like the illustration we used earlier. Two people living together out of wedlock. They're coming to church. They're hanging out with Jesus. They think they have a relationship. And they do have a, a relationship, not a saving relationship. It's a shallow, selfish, superficial relationship. They think it's genuine. These are the very folks that are going to stand before him in the day of judgment and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Guys, there's just no salvation without believing in Jesus to the point of commitment and receiving him as your bridegroom and Lord. Let me read these verses one more time. Excuse me, one more time. Verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know, this is a statement of omniscience. Jesus knew what was in the heart of people. Okay, God, a statement of divinity. You know, this is perhaps one of the most, one of the more astonishing, I should say, um, facts about God's omniscience. That he knows everything there is to know about us. Everything. The obvious, but he also knows the deepest secrets of your heart. He knows it all. He's omniscient. He knows what's in our heart. And yet, having known us the way he does, he's still proposing marriage to us. Oh, that's a mind blower. Because I talk to people all the time, mostly women, who are Christians and started dating a guy who said he was a Christian. You know, oh, he was just such a spiritual guy. You know, oh, we always read the Bible together. Oh, he wanted to come to church all the time, you know. So she marries this guy and finds out he was a deceiver. He's not what he claimed to be. Now, you stay married because God says unless there's infidelity or he's beaten up on you, you stay there, you pray, you be a good witness. First Peter uh, 3, 1 to, uh, 1 to 6 says you hang in there, you be what God wants you to be to this person and let God work on them. So, you, so God can take care of it and he can save this person. But let's be honest. Truth be told, if you had known back then what you know right now, you probably wouldn't have married the person, right? Well, God knows everything there is to know about us in fact in verses 24 and 5 it says twice he knew what was in men he knew all men right that's a greek word that means a very deep intimate knowledge usually usually used in terms of of uh, sexual uh, relations between a husband and wife cain knew his wife she bore him a son joseph didn't know mary until after jesus was born God knows us very intimately. And yet he's still proposing marriage to us, those of you who have not received him. Those of us who have, we've already accepted his proposal. We're married to him. And uh, the wedding is coming. We're betrothed, I should say. And someday we'll be fully married. But God loves you. He knows everything there is to know about you. And with loving kindness, he has drawn you to himself. 
Today is a day for some of you. Either you're going to accept Christ as your bridegroom. He's proposing marriage. You're going to say, Lord Jesus, I accept your proposal. And you're going to get saved. Or you're going to walk out of here going, ah, he's nuts. I love God. I boys love God. Yeah. Look, if you're following Jesus this morning, let me ask you again, why? Why are you following him? Uh, what kind of relationship do you want with him? Many people want to have a relationship with Jesus that's you know, purely based on what he's going to do for them, what he's going to give them or what they can get out of it. You know, we have names given to people who pretend to love people, right? Who pretend to have a, a true love for somebody, all right? But they're only really looking to get things from this person. Uh, we have names for people like guys we call gigolos, the women we call gold diggers. So a lot of gigolos and gold diggers in the body of Christ in a sense, okay? A lot of people who feign love for Jesus. Oh, I love you, Lord. But they really love themselves. Not about living for Jesus, about what Jesus is going to do for them. Look, Jesus will never commit himself to people like that. Never. But to anyone who truly loves him and wants to spend eternity with him, he is ready and willing to make a commitment to you if, listen, you are willing to make a commitment to him. I've entitled this message, Is Jesus Committed to You? Is Jesus Committed to You? Well, that all depends on whether or not you've made a commitment to him. If you haven't, today is a great day to do it. Today is the day of salvation. So may God give you grace. And if you have made a commitment to him, if, you are if you're a Christian, you're betrothed to him, can I just encourage you not to have any other loves in your life? Not, I'm not talking about your family, your marriage. That's legitimate. I'm talking about any other gods of this world. Can I just encourage you, look, if you're going to, if you've made a commitment to Christ, then go all the way with it. Be totally faithful. And he's your only love, your first and only love, uh, spiritually speaking. And, and, and just pour yourself into your, love, your relationship with Jesus. And I'm telling you, um, the more you love him, the more he pours his love on you. It's an incredible thing to experience. May God give us grace to not just play games, to not just date the Lord, but to make a commitment to him. One we renew every single day. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that buried in these little three verses are some incredible truths that we need to understand. They were placed here by the Holy Spirit for our learning. We thank you. And we ask you, Lord, to continue to bless these studies in your word. And if anyone is here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know you, has not made a, relation, a commitment to you, Lord, work in their heart that they would come forward after service and Straighten that out. Make that commitment. They can leave here in a committed relationship with you, which will go on for eternity. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.